let's yeah, let's make sure we use up the good ideas here. Yeah. Yeah. Um Alright everybody. Welcome back to the wages of cinema. And I have a dead donkey for you, and it's full of cheese. Was that full of cheese? I don't know, Jack. You tell me. It's a good question. Sandwich! We're going to talk about surrealism. I have a balloon in my head! No. Uh, and we're not just going to talk about weird stuff. We're going to talk about the, the brief, tragically brief flowering of surrealism in cinema in the 1920s, in the 1920s and, 30s. and 30s. And then po and then we could also possibly talk about how s surrealism has sort of stayed with us in the history of cinema in the past century. And, and the fact you that may so many be... children of the surrealists have come about... Uh, and even in small ways, in even in cartoons, and especially in cartoons, but also in live-action features and the underground. Let, let me talk about, briefly, how much surrealism has ingrained itself in our lives. Yes. Without us even realizing it. I was doing research. I was watching clips on surrealism. Just do a little research. Uh -huh. And before it was a commercial about the sun with the sun god Ra... Trimming, trimming hedges as an advertisement for solar power. <laughs> I feel it's like... It's right here. It's like in our breakfast cereal. Geico <laughs> commercials are surrealist efforts now. Like, but, but it's not even like... You don't even see it anymore. Like half the great cartoons that we have nowadays have some surreal element. And we don't even think about it because it's good surrealism. Let's not get crazy right now. No, but let's go... Let's take you back and back and back to... When surrealism kind of became a, a thing, sort of. In the late 20s. Well, I'd say uh, let's, the mid to late 20s. But let's think about well, the Let's late... talk about the history that before it got into cinema, surrealism and also I think the term Dadaism, which, how do we, is there a difference between those two? I think there is in the sense that Dadaism seems to have no, uh... All right, I'm See, not. Should I, I, should, I, should I Wikipedia this? Uh, <laughs> I feel like all right. I'm not an art historian, but one yeah. morphs into the other. I believe. Yeah, I mean that's the thing with when it comes to surrealism, it started off in arts in painting, uh, because originally visual arts. Yeah, in the visual arts, um, two of the first real filmmakers in uh, surrealism, uh, Man Ray and Salvador Dali were painters originally. They were trained in that form. Yeah, they're classically and, trained artists. And the thing about cinema though that you know, you could you really take for granted though today cuz I was I was re I was watching a documentary about Louis Buñuel. Um Louis Buñuel talks about in his autobiography that you know, when he was a kid, cinema was looked at like, you know, you didn't go to the movies if you had money. You right. know, cinema was looked at as like a sideshow attraction for the working class. It was kind of like the pulp novel or the comic strip. Yeah, it the, was a dispose. It was kind of a disposable art form for just um, the Nickelodeon low level and levels of society. Yeah, and so when he was a kid, he didn't really watch any movies. He only, I think, he probably watched his first movie when he was in his teens or. But by the same token, the surrealists grew up with cinema. Which they was did. what, which was what set them apart from other artists. Impressionism had come before, and everything had come before. Uh, in the early 20th century, the artists that grew up and became involved in surrealism were part, like the first generation to really have cinema, because you know yeah. in the early, in the early, in the 19, 
aughts. Uh, there was mm-hmm. the work of uh, George Méliès. Yes. Uh, and then there was eventually Chaplin, and th- and people came along. Yeah, and, and Griffith was the one who Max sort of Senate set up and the Buster Keaton. grammar. Yeah, and Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton apparently, you know, and we'll, we'll be talking about this book more in a moment, but uh, Keaton apparently had a big influence on the Surrealists. Yeah. Comedians in general, I think, you know, they appealed to Surrealists because, all right, we're not doing something that's super serious. We're actually having fun. We're trying to play with the audience's heads and expectations. Clouding people's expectations. The fact that Buster Keaton can do these amazing stunts that, you know, nobody has ever seen before that, like, you know, a house falls and he's... And know, he manages he, to survive because he's standing in the right place where <laughs> yes, the window can. Exactly. That sort Which of is image. a super picturesque and super dangerous stunt. <laughs> well, nothing says dangerous like what Buster Keaton used to do. I think, like, he... He's like Seriously, the Jackie Chan of silence fil- silent films. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, let me, let or, me talk well, a little Keaton bit. Is the Buster Keaton of kung fu movies? All right, good way. Uh, let me, t- but let's give it a little further context. Uh, so the surrealism cinema movement comes about in the late twenties, nineteen twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. And, I would uh, say maybe even around twenty-five. Maybe, but by that time, the great silent films had. Like, anything you could think of had already happened. Silent Cinema was actually really becoming... It hit the nadir at that time. Yeah, you're right. Just as sound was coming in, which everybody looked at as, are you kidding? Right. Sound with movies? You can't have that. But think about it. You had films like Nanook of the North, Mm -hmm. uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Millier's work. Also, uh, uh, Murnau. Murnau, yeah. And, uh, and Fritz Lang was a huge influence on... Metropolis well. had already came out. And basically, any all the great silent films yes. had come out before Surrealism. So Surrealism is probably the last great... Uh, are the last great masterpieces yeah. of silent film. Like, Charlie in, in, in the 1930s, Charlie Chaplin is going to make City Lights, and he's going to make Modern Times, and those are... But that's after the fact those are spiritually Yeah, those are spiritually silent films, but it's, like, it's silent films last It's him arrive. kind it's, of it's his, grasping to the last vestiges. And they're great films. But silent film... Uh, silent you know, film is it, when it, you it know that you out. don't have the backup of, of people talking to back you up. Which is why when Luis Buñuel premieres Un Chen Andalou, he has a phonograph recording for his That's what's interesting, music. though, because I wanted, what I wanted to talk about with that is, um, I mean, the first time I saw Un Chen Andalou was on VHS tape, and it had the tango music and the classical music. Right. And that's, you know, I, it's hard to think of watching that movie without the music. And yet, when I was in college, I was in a film class where our teacher actually showed us Unchinandalu on 16mm film. Ooh. Obviously, there was no. Yeah, it looked. It was awesome. And most of the other students with me, maybe all the other students, had never seen it. And so they were really thrown off by it. And yet, it still. It wasn't quite as effective because I didn't have the music. Yeah. I think I had the music kind of playing in my head because <laughs> that was an example, though, I think, even though it was a silent film, you know, just like with something like Good, the Bad, the Ugly or a classic Hitchcock movie, you can't, or or Jaws, you can't separate how the image works without the music. Like, the way that, when, because I recently watched Unchandalu again, um, and that moment where the man, you know, he's watching, looking outside with the woman, at the woman who's been hit by the car, but then all of a and sudden... And you have the he, Wagner 
Yeah, there's the uh, Wagner there. Tristan and Isolde. Yes. There's that moment where it's almost kind of, it's meant to be I, maybe ironically romantic because he's like leering at her. Yeah. And then finally he makes her move, and at that moment, the tango music comes in. A shift in tone. But... A shift in tone, but it still works because as he's, you know, messing with her, as he's feeling her up, Fondling the tango her. music, you know, really. It, it hits a nerve. It really complements the imagery. And the Tristan and these old parts, they 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 culminate, they climax at a point where a woman gets hit by a car mm-hmm. and where a, a man is shot. Yeah. And but, oh man. What we I, should talk about with surrealism though is the fact that um, you know it it this came about in large part because of you know the the people who made these movies. They were at the same time. Yeah. You know, silent film was evolving in that way. But this was also a movement of people who were just tired of seeing the same old linear storytelling in films. Let's get back to a little bit of the origin, because okay. let's talk about André Breton. Yes, André Breton when was, he was a writer, a playwright. And the founder of the surrealism movement. Okay. You, you could probably say one of the founders. Yeah, there uh, were a number of people who sort of were part of that Breton is probably group. the most prominent. But he talked about his experiences in the cinema, where he and a friend would go to a movie theater buy a ticket, go see the movie for maybe about half an hour. Then they'd leave the theater and go to another theater to watch mm. another movie. And it wasn't like, uh, and they would, it didn't matter what was playing. It didn't matter how long it had been running. They just went in like in the middle and they started watching that. Well, then they'd leave again and go to another well, theater. Well, that's a cliche though that ended up happening. That, that stayed in movie going for a number of years. Like that's where the phrase, oh, this is where I came in uh, comes from. Cause a lot of people, over the years, not just in the silent era, but you know, up until maybe the 1960s, would kind of sneak, go in and out of movies. That's why when Hitchcock told people, no, you have to watch Psycho from the beginning, uh, that's why that was kind of in part revolutionary. Because, wait, I have to watch this from the start? Are you yeah. kidding? I can't just come in in the middle? Yeah. Oh, I see why. And this is serial <laughs> film hopping, where like they'd probably yeah. see five films this way. And then it was all about, for them, making connections mm. about between these disparate m- moments of film. And that, I think, is the With essence sort of, of surrealism. At the same time, something that... Um, well, I don't know if when we can get into the sort of book that sort of backends this discussion, but... Well, let's introduce it a bit. Yeah. In uh, a, the we, book we, we're talking about for a required reading is Dali in Film yeah. by... Yeah. Uh, hold on, let me get the editor's name here. His name uh, is... Edited by Matthew Gale. It's a yeah, bunch of... a number of articles. It's a number of very... Frankly, they're kind of academic essays that look into the history of surrealist movement, also Dali's uh, point in that movement as well right his projects that were realized and also much more in a way not realized because ultimately (laughs) dolly's films didn't get made more than they did get made yeah but what i wanted to talk about with that was this whole idea that dolly talked about which is what he called the anti-artistic movie and he has this letter that is reprinted in the in the in the book which he wrote to dolly no, no, that, sorry, that Dali wrote... <laughs> Dali Louis... would write a letter to himself. <laughs> he might, he might. Uh, no, but Dali wrote a letter to Louis Buñuel, and he wrote about, in a lot of depth, about the whole concept of how there are movies that are artistic, and there are movies that are anti-artistic. And now whether or not, you know, you might think, all right, is, is 
Dali kind of blowing smoke up my ass with this whole argument. Who knows? I mean, Dali, Possibly, I love highfalutin yes. <laughs> language. Dali was a character, which we'll get into in a minute, but he, it's a very, it's a fascinating essay though. And it actually has like one of the, um, maybe one of like the best descriptions I've ever heard about the cinematic experience. And I'm trying to find the goddamn page. Because let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Dali and Buñuel. Dali and Buñuel were very young men around the late 1920s. They were they went uh, to Dali, the same school. Dali, yeah, they went to the same school. Uh, Dali had uh, gotten thrown out of the school because yeah. uh, and because the, he, and this famous writer uh, Federico Garcia Loca was their uh, contemporary. Yeah. So I, see the film Little Ashes for no reason. Uh, uh, but no, don't. Uh, Dali and Buñuel looking to establish themselves in surrealism, which was already, which was forming up in Paris. So they were looking for a way in. Yeah. And they had come, and they were both fans of the cinema. They had grown up with it. Uh, Dali had seen several films uh, by Disney, I believe, and by... Well, uh, Fritz Lang was his big influence. I think he talked about how that was the filmmaker who, like, made him want to make movies. Yeah. And then... He got a job for a while working with this guy, John, John Epstein, and he did a version of The Fall of the House of Usher, and he was Epstein's uh, aren't assistant. Aren't you talking about uh, Buñuel? Buñuel was Epstein's assistant, that's yeah. what I was saying. And I Buñuel saying had gotten, had gotten uh, work in films, he had worked with uh, Yeah, Epstein. he'd been sort he of He had also worked with Abel Gantz, hadn't he? I didn't read about that, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. But he had learned, but uh, Buñuel had been working with several filmmakers, and you know he was a fan. He had some skill, so he and Dali get to work on this film. And yeah, what they decide to do is that, and they're inspired by a lot of the of of, of avant-garde filmmakers at the time, uh, people like Man Ray, uh, people like Germaine Duluc, who we talked about before, who made. Uh, the starfish and there's also another movie which i watched by the way before we started recording called emak bakia and that was just a series of images that even more so than starfish have little association with one another it's almost like an experiment where you just see like lots of squiggly lines and flowers and cartoon nails and somebody dancing like this is you want to talk about free association and Mach Bakura is like, okay, there's, I am just in it for visual experience. I am in it for what we call visual poetry, which is, uh, you know, maybe yeah. in later years we've seen. But what happens with Buñuel and Dali, though, is that they each had a, a dream, which kind of inspired them, uh, sort of initially. Uh, Buñuel had a dream. Now, it's debated about who had which dream, again, with a collaborative process, as you know from being the co-writer of Filler, uh, <laughs> the short film Filler, check it out, folks, on Vimeo. Sometimes when it comes to the collaborative process, nailing down who wrote what, you know, sometimes in history that can be kind of contentious. It's, it's the Lennon-McCartney effect. Exactly. So, but from what I've read, Buñuel had the dream about the eye being slid open. Dali had the dream about ants coming out of a hand. Right. And so from that they kind of had their launching pad to, and they had uh, to kind of come together and make kind of you know what they knew was an attack on the audience in a way. Yeah. That's sort of what surrealism in a way also was about was the fact that hey, you, we're not giving you a pleasant, easygoing experience where you have such a thing as like 
a relatable story. No. We're going to kind of assault you in the sense of, you know, here are images that are meant to disturb you. I mean, I recently showed Corey uh, the opening of Unchi Andalu, oh, and yeah. she, at, you know... And when she saw the eye, she was like, you're a terrible person yeah. for me doing that. And I feel bad. But And it's that opening image of the eye which really defines Unchen Andalou. Yeah. Uh, the, their writing process, Dali and Buñuel, yeah. was, well, they had these dreams, but they also had to write a script. A script for a surrealist yeah. movie? Yes. And I'll tell you why that's important. No, uh, no, it is important because they, they just, did follow a script. It yeah. was still... For as much as you might look at Unchin Andalou today and be like, oh my god, this is so crazy, what the hell's going on? It does Bu- have a logic to it. In the book, and the, the, in the logic book, they, they had. Of, yeah, in the book, Buñuel really did get, yeah, he had a logic. He and Dali actually did work closely together. Um, yeah, and their, and their, their operating manner was, okay, we have to suggest scenes or shots, but the shot that comes after... There was there should be no rational way to connect one scene after another. Exactly. So in cinema, I would say like there's a scene of me and Jack at this table. I hand Jack a glass of water. Mm-hmm. The next shot is Jack saying thank you and taking the water. Mm-hmm. So in a surrealist film, I would hand Jack the water, and then he would pull out a gun and shoot me. <laughs> or or at best, the glass would be made of like bugs. The glass would turn into bugs, or it would be. Uh, Full of sheep's blood or something. Uh, it's it's like the the film is meant to be intent deliberately disturbing. Yes, you know, and that like it was actually described, I think, that um, as a quote magnificent crime <laughs> when it was made. Actually, it's interesting to point out some of the other alternate titles because originally they they were they had like working titles for the movie. Uh, like it wasn't called, like Unchin Endo. In fact, it was sort of uh, their friend uh, Frederick Gar- Garcia Lorca came from Andalusia, yeah. and he sort of took it as as an offensive remark. Like, hey, is this about me? Yeah. Um, and the fact that originally it was going to be called, it is dangerous to lean inside. <laughs> what? Yes, that was the working title for the movie, um, and. Yeah, and so if you look in this book, Dali and Film, it has a lot of useful stories. Like, it has a couple of chapters about the making of Unchin Andalou and Lodge d'Or, and how, and it's interesting to see these two different films and how they were made, in that Unchin Andalou, you know, it was shot, and like I said, it was shot very professionally and very quickly. Yeah, it Gar- took about Buñuel, two months, I Yeah, think. from the start of shooting the premiere, Gar- Buñuel was very organized. So in that sense... Even though, yeah, I'm it making was a this very crazy small movie. project. It was a small project. I mean, um, you know, what, uh, I'd be curious if there was ever you know, footage on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Who knows? Although later on, again, because this movie, you know, it was embraced by the people who were meant to see it. Like initially, Buñuel, there was the story that he brought rocks with him in his pocket, and he was prepared to like throw it at the audience if they got out of line. I think that was what he was hoping for, because yeah, when... it was when, meant to be a provocation. When The Seashell and the Clergyman got released, there was a riot. But, yes. Uh, because, not because of people who disapproved of the film, but because, because some, of the artistic, that were... some of the artistic problems with it. And 
and Dolly and Munuel were trying to provoke a sort of violent response to this. They were trying to make anti-art, which people, which wasn't to comfort people or to entertain necessarily. But they were disappointed because everyone who saw it was like, "Yeah, good film, nice job, guys." <laughs> yeah, that sort of. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it was like, "Hey, wait, this isn't what we intended. We we wanted you to piss you off." And yeah, yeah, it's like it almost became, even though it put them both on the map in a much bigger way than they had been before they almost kind of resented that yeah which led them then to you know collaborate on lodge d'or which is a much more provocative film and got kind of the response that they were looking yeah for. that was much more of them much even more deliberately going out and saying all right we want to attack the church uh we've been now now that unchi and andalu has sort of brought us into the sort of upper class echelon we want to make fun of you Yes. Um, you know, so they really ridicule the rich in that movie. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about our personal experience with Unjen Andalou. Yeah, I sure. first saw this maybe about five days after I got into college mm. because of our mutual friend, Matt yes. Rosen. Yes. He's like, hey, I don't know if you heard of that, this, but it was written by Salvador Dali. And I was like, all right, sign me up. <laughs> and we watched it twice that day. And mm. it was, it immediately clicked. With it's me. kind of like. All right, now I know I'm in college. Yes. <laughs> when you're watching Unchin Andalou in your dorm room, that's when you've arrived. Uh, it's a 15-minute movie. It's a 15-minute movie, but... I, you don't have to see this movie, but there's no reason for you not to see this movie. It's yes. a great film with great images. It's the best short film It'll ever made. It'll weird you out, and it's an important piece of cinema history. It's one yes. of the last great silent films. Yes, exactly. I think that... Uh, yeah, and it's just, it's also, if you ha are, can tap into it, like, you know, like, in a way, this is almost a good litmus test type of movie. Yeah. If you get a girl, like, for, if you get a girlfriend, uh, or you think you have a girlfriend, watch Unchin Andalou with her, and if she finds it funny, marry that girl. Yes. Uh, if she runs oh, away I'm gonna screaming. Oh, I'm going to try that. <laughs> I've shown Chen Andalou to my friends, and I've never got the positive response that I've gotten. I still yeah. these are people are still my friends, but I think that I, compared to other of to, compared to other surrealist films that I've watched recently, I feel like Unchi Andalou in a way is more straightforward in some ways. The way that the images flow, again, because even though there is the disassociation, again, it's like all of a sudden a hairy armpit turns into a seat into like an urchin and all these things. Yeah, there is a progression of events. Yeah, and let this is part of my d problem with the seashell and the clergyman. Okay. All right, we just talked a little about this early, in an earlier part of the podcast. Uh, Unchen Andalu, its strengths are very strong images, mm -hmm. the eyeball being sliced, the woman, the the androgynous woman holding that box, the man on the bicycle in woman's clothes, <laughs> yeah. the um, the donkeys on the piano. You know, for a while I thought those were deer. Yeah, uh, but very concrete, very vivid images. Mm -hmm. And but it has a plot. You probably can't even call it a plot. It's not. Well, no, no. Here's the thing. But, it's not. And, and a it plot, has. But it, it is. There's nothing in it that's super obscure. It keeps moving. Yeah. The one thing I. The one thing I. Like I said, I like. I like to see Sheldon the clergyman more than you did. But there is that moment in the movie where it kind of just stops, and you're just watching like a ship. Yeah. And it's just like, all right, I'm watching this ship. What next? Yeah. What else you got for me? And uh, <laughs> and Unchan Andalou, even though it has a lot of images, it doesn't have blatant symbolism or no. any sort of 
real tangible lesson. It is anti-art. Bunchy and Anbalu the... is a purely cinematic experience. Right. There's no... There's no way to translate Unchan Andalu outside of outside of film. It's like having a, a picture of Revolution at, Number Nine. At best, <laughs> at best, <laughs> at best, you could have maybe the. I mean, the script was published like in. Yeah, I have I have a book magazine. of the script. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, it doesn't do it justice. The prob- the way that this compares, fa- this is contrasting against Seashell and the Clergyman. Seashell and the Clergyman has just one image that I could really grasp. It's that opening image of the priest and his seashell and, more the, and the bottles. That. But what, what about the maids in that room? Yeah, well, I thought that was a great shot. That's nothing I could ever. I haven't seen in another film. I there's very little that's unique on it, and the symbolism is very blatant. It's obvious. So it hasn't pulled up. No, it's obvious that this is about a man's desire. The so priest it, it, it represents so, someone who's supposed to be celibate. He's pursuing these women, mm-hmm. and he's frustrated every turn. This is about the thwarting of his desire. Yeah. And there are little moments like that in Unchan Andalu, but it never, but with, it never beats you over the head with any single thing. There are so Andalu, many, there are so many images in Unchan Andalu. You can hardly guess what it's about. There are things that I might that I've read into Unchan Andalu, and when I've talked to other people, they're like, oh, I didn't really think that because to me. It's like that whole scene where, you know, he's chasing after the woman in the apartment and she doesn't want him and he kind of stops for a moment and then he goes to get the piano with the donkey on it. I read that as like he's trying to profess his love to her. It's like, look, I can do this thing and it has this donkey on it and isn't that amazing? <laughs> I had a few... And other people have seen that and been like, what? Yeah, I have in my mind uh, a, a plot for <laughs> Unchen Andalu, what it's about. Okay. Like what its narrative is, yeah. and it's meaningless. It's yeah. all a creation of my Surrealists mind. Are, it's, like, they don't want it to. That's the whole point. It's though, a cinematic that, Rorschach test, I believe. Yes, it's you know, and as David Lynch would say, which maybe we could talk about him in a little bit, is you know, it's like like you're you're catching when he talks about catching the big fish. You know, you have all these fish which are ideas, and you know, catching the big fish is like the big idea that will lead you to put them all together. Yeah, and I would say that in Unchin Andalu, the big fish is the eyeball, and from after that, it's like everything will follow after, you know, because it's you like, can't you can't beat that eyeball. Buñuel, it's interesting because Buñuel's career started with like the most notorious scene in cinema history. Yeah, you could almost argue. Um, so let's move, let's on, move on to Lage d'Or. Now I should say that I watched part of this again. Um, this one is a longer film because it's sixty minutes. This is like a this is more like a feature. Yeah, it's closer to being a feature. And in my mind, this doesn't do well because I feel like it overstays its welcome. I still like the movie a lot, um, from what I remember. I remember at the time when I watched it, I didn't love it like Unchin Andalu, but I still thought it was accomplishing the sort of similar aesthetic of Unchin Andalu. I agree. Like so, it's. I feel like if you stretched out Unchan Andalu to four times its length, uh, you'd probably get something like Lodge Door. It's, but it's just more effective in if, that fifteen-minute burst. And if you stretch out Unchan Andalu twelve times its length, you get Inland Empire. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but, but with Lodge Door, that's Door, much more provocative. Yes, and it was purposely more provocative because of the positive response that Unchan Andalu got. As like, and Dali and Bunuel were like, "All right, we've really got to ramp up the offensiveness on this one." Yeah, and what's interesting with their collaboration, from what I was reading about in the book, 
uh, it kind of got, I think, in, in a weird way, they kind of got a little more frayed. Like, I think, like, uh, Buñuel really mostly wrote most of the script himself. Dali was and away Dali contributed for ideas. Yeah. Like, they, like, what happened was, from what I read in the book, like, Dali and Buñuel did get together, but not, like, not much came of their meetup. Buñuel ended up kind of using a lot of Dali's notes. Yeah. That, like, his suggestions and incorporated them into his script. But ultimately, it was a little bit more of a Buñuel film than a Buñuel Dali hybrid. I would agree that uh, but it's, it's still more a of Dali. a Buñuel film because it's more about themes that Buñuel is going to revisit in his later films Lots about, of about bourgeois characters. And there about... are still a lot of things that are memorable, though, in this film. Yeah. The, I, the opening the, with the scorpions and the rat. Yeah. And then all the the bishops on the rocks. Yes. <laughs> and of course, the third one. The lovers is rolling around in the mud. The, the, the giraffe girl, being thrown off of the balcony. The girl sucking on the the statue's toe. Oh, that's gotta be that. I I love that whole sequence yes. of the of the concert in the garden. Mm-hmm. And the man, like you see his face, then you cut away, and then you cut back, and he's bleeding. It's like a great it's like he's gotten the crap out of, of it. It's a satire of melodrama too. Yeah, like a lot of surrealism has a satirical element to it as well. Yeah, making fun of social norms and conventions. Um, what happened with this movie though? It got released for like a few days. Word spread about it fast, yeah. And these kind of like fascist right wing right-wing people uh, reactionaries, yeah. They threw purple ink at like the movie screen. They tore up that, poster. They tore up paintings by surrealists that were in the lobby, yeah. And uh, and then the movie got banned uh, because of like pressure from them and the the board kind of saw. Wait a minute, I don't know why we granted this. You know that it could be released. This is pretty offensive. Yeah, and so it was banned still, in France for a while. Yeah, still not quite, uh, still not quite the the reaction that Dali and Buñuel are hoping for, I think. But it got a, it got a, a kind of serious response politically. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a pity though that it got banned. It uh, it was just kind of in private collections for for a long time. It didn't get released in the United States until 1979. Probably officially. There were officially. probably, there were there probably were like screenings before. There were clandestine screenings. Yeah. But, like, as far as the public knew, this was one of those movies that was... You talk about, like, an underground film. This was at a time where, you know, kids... There was no YouTube. There was no VHS. <laughs> there was no DVD. You had to go to a theater and see Lodge d'Or. By the way, get off my lawn. So... <laughs> now, I want to go back to the, the and book, Another thing book that I want to... Th- I just really want to point out, which is just so foreign to... Pe- to me and probably anybody else listening to this that films used to have riots. <laughs> yep. Yeah. They you did. would never hear about that nowadays. Like apparently Alejandro Jodorowsky's first film, Fando and Liz. Oh yeah. That caused like a major riot in Mexico. Like yeah. people were just cuz we that that sort of got him the sort of res- Buñuel Dali response at the time. And he he kind of went all out with a kind of bizarro surrealist film. It's been a while since I've seen that film. I've got to revisit it. That one may be even purer in terms of surrealist efforts than some of his later films, which is arguable. Um, When it comes to this book, Dolly and Film, now I should say that when we say that it's a, quote, required reading, I wouldn't say this is 100% required, unless if you're really seriously into Salvador Dali and the history of surrealism. Here's a here's it's a very academic reading, 
it's it, frankly even for me someone who has written you know like research papers on films and had to use scholarly articles at times it was just a little difficult to the read the first few chapters are very dense and challenging uh you can get through them fairly quickly but once they start talking about the films the, themselves rather than philosophy that or about better. art criticism that got better uh, they become much more critic. interesting i'm not an art oh, critic God, I'm, not I'm not an art, art critic either <laughs> well i'm not even you know art, i never took an art history class officially i did but this is beyond me too uh, yeah so like all the descriptions I, about dolly's art and relation to the cinema it just lost me it but starts are, it starts off kind of dull but then you start talking about the films and the then film you, history is more interesting it's much more interesting and if you like dolly and you're interested about his collaboration in the world of cinema which is actually quite extensive he uh despite his about, failed projects yeah it's like, uh it's still a fascinating read yeah he the thing with Do- salvador dolly is that like he's you know uh, uh, his art you know, was what really lasted the most. His, his painting. Career, his paintings. He was primarily a painter, but he was always kind of fascinated by cinema and its potential for, you know, breaking the mold of what's expected. Again, I mentioned the whole idea of the anti-artistic film, and he has a whole letter to Buñuel where he talks about the whole concept of, you know, we need to try to break apart what is expected. You know, the fact... And he has this whole great opening where he talks about, like, the film bird. And right. I just want to read a tiny bit of this, because this letter I thought was just fantastic. Um, just give me a quick second, because I know that I know that we should move things along, but this is just it's too all right. good it's to all move right. along. Let's go ahead. The film bird, like that of photography, does not have to be hunted in faraway places. It is everywhere, in any location, in the most unexpected sight. The film bird, nevertheless, commands such subtle and perfect mimicry that it remains invisible in its flights through the naked objectivity. Because of this, discovering it is a matter of high poetic inspiration. There is no more spiritual hunt than that of this bird, whose presence we are unable to perceive. No hunt is less gory or draws more blood. It is at the same time almost a game with the bird in prison, shut within a camera obscura and liberated anew by the crystalline lens, free of anilines and having chloroformed wings if we care to listen we would hear the black and white music of the different velocities of these birds as they come out from the electric milky way of the film projector i fucking love that (laughs) then it would be sweet to notice how the most dizzying flights form a succession of quietudes and the most inspired beating of the wings a continuity of anesthetized claims Calms, sorry. Each new light, a new anesthesia. Um, and so he goes on and on to talk about how the cinema bird is like a timber. The cinema bird is yet the breeze emanating from a fan. Yeah. So it's this whole beautiful section, but he goes to talk about the whole idea of, you know, anti-artistic film. You know, he really is more about primary, constant you know, psychological things. Whereas an artistic filmmaker to him was someone who, Oh, you're doing a real movie. Screw off. Get off my lawn. (laughs) And so from this, this sort of informed him as he tried to put together projects. Like in the 1930s, after Lodge d'Or, he tried to write his own scripts. Um, Ultimately though, I think what the sense I got from reading the book, he just didn't have great concentration. And he also, he had a wife who, Actually, he was married to for his whole life, which is kind of surprising to me. Very surprising for an artist. You know, I mean, he did have 
His sorry to generalize all your artists out there, but uh, um, there's a great story I should do as a quick aside. Where Buñuel, are you going to talk about? Oh, you keep going. Well, no, no. Buñuel talks about how, like, you know, yeah, I mean, Buñuel, you know, he was married and he did flirt with women, but his idea, Buñuel said, Dali's idea of flirting with women was he would have a woman over to his apartment, have her take off all of her clothes, fry two eggs, put them on her shoulders, and show them the door. <sighs> <laughs> that was seduction for him. Um, one of the fascinating things in the book, as some of you may or may not know, Dolly loved the Marx Brothers. Loved the Marx Brothers yeah. so much. He he actually did paintings of Harpo, and Harpo really loved Dolly. Yeah, they and, met several uh, times, and they they try, uh, Dolly tried to get a tried to write a script for the Marx Brothers. He tried to write a script for the Marx Brothers. And the title of this script was Giraffes on Horseback Salad. Yes, Giraffes on Horseback Salad, probably reference to uh, their film uh, Horse Feathers, Yeah, in part. Uh, there are a lot of interesting descriptions. The, the, the book talks a little bit about how... Think, if you've um, seen these movies, think about probably... Uh, yeah. Think about Horse Feathers mixed with Lodge d'Or. Yes. In in a in a way it really kind of makes sense. It kind of does. I mean, what when you watch the Marx Brothers movies, especially those early ones, they really reveled in anarchy on a level that yeah, I mean, you know, you have Groucho who's doing a lot of quips and, you know, cracks, but Harpo's antics at times are really surreal. Yeah, and the Marx Brothers are are constantly flouting authority, uh making fun of the upper class, uh generally striking against you know, bourgeois values in the way that I think surrealists hope to do. Yeah, like somehow uh, th those comedians and also... It's really certain... bizarre, but it makes a compelling amount of sense yes. when you really think about the two it. There, there were two, fil like, two filmmakers who I think, you know, aside from the Marx Brothers, I think Dolly also loved Walt Disney, too. Yeah, uh, Disney... Uh, he put out a f uh, short called The Skeleton Dance, which I mm. watched, actually. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of this musical thing with skeletons doing Disney, things. Was that or was that someone else? Disney. Okay. It's, it's Disney. It's, it's a silly symphony. Okay. And Dali saw this too, and he thought, and he included Disney as one of the great American surrealists. Mm. And which is interesting, uh, which also makes Disney sense is. considering how much surrealism has seeped into animation these days. It's Adventure Time. Adventure Time. Adventure Time. SpongeBob SquarePants. Didn't you tell me, by the way, like? Now, like I said, I'm not a big SpongeBob guy, but there is a character named Man Ray. Yes, on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's joined by he's voiced by John Rhys Davies. Okay. Uh, Gimli from Lord of the Rings. Yes. Uh, and he's this manta ray themed villain who's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, I joked to Andrew when we were first talking about this. Like, I wonder if Man Ray is in like the Aquaman comics as like a sort of like guy who's the trying to get his spot. Yes. <laughs> Um, but then what happens is uh, Dolly tries to collaborate with Disney in the 1940s on a oh, project boy, called Destino, um, and fortunately that didn't quite pan out. Like they, he did about 15 seconds of footage with Disney, and then who knows what happened? Maybe Dolly just said the wrong thing and pissed him off. Maybe Disney had to go do something else. I have a theory as to why this kind of fell apart. It was just and too it, weird. No. Uh, here's part of the... Re I think here's the main reason why a lot of Dolly's film projects never got off the ground. Dolly was constantly trying to write scripts and do things, and he, he was very interested in cinema. Uh, part of the problem was is that it was secondary to him. He was mostly... 
well, interested yeah. in paintings. He's known for his he paintings. Had, he had kind of... I got the sense from reading the book was that he had kind of ADD with that. Uh, but I don't think that's the real problem. I think part of the reason is because he did not have a firm collaborator like he did with Luis Buñuel. Buñuel was a real filmmaker. Right. He wanted to make films. And, and that's Dali, what he did with his And Dali life. could say he wanted anything, but Buñuel was probably the person who was able to say, well... I mean, they were friends, and they so they could talk openly to each other. It's like Salvador, we we can't really do this. I mean, we can make it work another way. It'll change it a lot. Buñuel but knew what could work with what he had. He is a practical on film. He was a practical filmmaker, uh, and Dali could suggest whatever wild image he wanted. But what could get? But you know, there's certain things that you can't film. That's why it's like I think that from what I read in the originally, Dali suggested even more images involving like burning giraffes. Right. Uh, and exploding <laughs> swans. Yeah, and Buñuel, you know, he got these suggestions, and he's just like, no. All right, and that's part of the pro. That's one part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is that Dali is a, was a surrealist, and he was trying to make films that were anti-art. Yes, and also ultimately anti-profit. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do that so- in a in a field and it was e- it's a commercial medium and it was easy to make unchan andalou because they got the money from buñuel's mother yeah it was and done they as made, like a student and film. it was a loge budget film and they got the money from lodge door from a rich count who want who wanted an art film made yeah uh, they had no investors to be responsible for so when dali makes this script for drafts on horseback salad with the mark marx brothers groucho what studio is going to green like right that? and groucho says they're not doing this because it's not entertainment and it's not money making so, and walt disney great artist uh but also great businessman yeah, it's like, does it have Donald Duck? Does it have not like, even necessarily a that? It's slam? like he did do weird stuff, but it was it was to entertain. Yeah, it was and always ultimately to entertain in order to make money. His Disney, if he did have any surrealism, it was kind of in the background. It was kind of in the background. It was sort of like here and there, it was in between what was otherwise you know a very commercial film. Yeah. Those little moments in Snow White or Pinocchio or Fantasia that are surreal, most of those films are still big, crowd-pleasing efforts. I saw- Dali made film. Dali's films were more about like, ha, I'm Dali, and you are... It's about, <laughs> I'm going to shock you by slicing an eyeball in half. Yeah, or I'm going to burn a giraffe. Yeah. Who wants... You know... Most most people in the 1940s, if they see a giraffe on fire, they're going to go running out of the theater. Yeah, and and that's really the problem. Dali is not making films no. to make profit. The closest that he got was, though, we should say, working with uh, Hitchcock. Yeah. In Spellbound. Spellbound. Uh, which, and we talked about Hitchcock in our last uh, episode of the film. Um, now, I should be honest, I kind of skimmed the chapter on this in the book. I however, read a few uh, however I have read however I did read a Hitchcock biography years ago, so I know a lot about the history of this. What happened and also there's another chapter too about this sort of failed effort, I think with Fritz Lang, I think, Moontide. Yeah. Moon that was Tide. another thing where he like and but the thing with Spellbound, there is footage of the film which you can watch and I've actually shared it on the Facebook page already, uh, of his scene in the film. Gregory Peck is describing a dream that he had, and of course there are a lot of eyeballs, there's kind of a ball going on, at one point you see a woman with a pair of scissors going up to the eyeball, in a way it's very much directly like as if, 
like taking Dali paintings and putting them in a movie and having characters walk around. Yeah, it's a really great dream sequence. You could probably find it on YouTube. Yeah. We'll post a link to However, it on the Facebook page. However, the thing that happened with this, though, uh, slightly similar, though, to his other experiences, even though... You know, there is Dali-infused uh, footage in Spellbound. There was supposed to be a lot more. And it got cut down by Selznick, who was just like, I don't want this in the movie. Screw you. I don't think that was all of it. It was also well, a matter of practicality. There was there uh, were a again, number of factors. There yeah. was Hitchcock saying, oh, no, no, we, we shouldn't go that far. There was Selznick, who was very, you know, he was even more commercially conscious than Hitchcock was and he was just like all right this is getting way too weird let's stop this right here because Hitchcock's whole idea with this was you know we've seen so many dream sequences in movies where oh we're gonna get the wavy lines and all of a sudden <laughs> it's just whatever and here he just kind of did a hard cut from all right Gregory Peck's describing something moves in close on his face and all of a sudden we're just seeing eyeballs yeah so that was cool I mean the fact is that we do have a classic Hollywood film with Dolly imagery that does exist. It's just a shame that it doesn't have more of it. Well, but what does exist is astounding. Yes. I really I really enjoy it. Just watch that dream sequence. We'll have a link uh -huh. to it on our Facebook page. Now, You'll see exactly what we mean. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to talk about with Dolly before we can move on uh, with the episode. I got to watch a film which, for a long time, I guess, has been thought to be lost or just hard to find. And... It's called Impressions of the Upper Mongolia. Of Outer Mongolia. Of yeah. Outer Mongolia. And this is important. I think it's important because Dali had this... In Dali's painting, Dali has this motif of double images. Mm. Where, um, for example, there is a town in the distance and there's something that looks like a wagon, but it could also be like trash in the road that looks yes. like a wagon. And this is something that is key in Unchen Andalu, in the opening scene. Uh, a, a thin cloud moves across the moon, like, essentially cutting in half, mm -hmm. and then a razor cuts an eyeball in half. Mm -hmm. They are thematically and aesthetically linked images. I think Dali called this part of his uh, parano uh, uh, paranoia, paranoia critical method. Mm. And you see it a lot in his paintings. Uh, I can't... Uh, I don't remember the names of them right now, but there are a lot of Dali paintings yeah. that have this sort of... Uh, the Metamorphosis of Narcissus is, is the most important part of this. Mm -hmm. And it's about making connections between things that irrationally have no... Con that It's making mm -hmm. irrational connections between disparate things. Yeah. And Impressions of Outer Mongolia are these images that you see... Uh, I haven't seen this film either, but yeah, I know a lot about well, the history well, of it. Well, I could tell you about with this movie. Okay, so from what I watched, now again, the, the version you could watch online, not the best copy, but what can you do? It's all we have. It's on YouTube and also on DailyMotion.com. It's Dali. What do you? you now, can't, you the can't first say thing no. we should say about this is this is the only film with Dali credited as a director. Right now, he now he co-directed the movie with someone named Jose Montes Baquer. But what happens is the movie is really presented kind of like. A, docu a documentary, yeah, in a way, but it's like a documentary where Salvador Dali is the host, and it's sort of about a quest to go to the hallucinogenic civilization of Upper Mongolia to find a magic mushroom, right? And and it's like moving across the terrain of of the land, yeah. right? Well, yeah. What happens is we see a lot of images that are like we're meant to be seeing, like going up the mountain. 
and at one point we see like the mushroom and it's basically like a giant sphere. Yeah. And Dali is hosting this as like almost like a nature show host. He's yeah. narrating it. Um he talks about how you know it's it is LSD without the LSD. <laughs> um, you know, and he has a famous quote, by the way, where he says, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. <laughs> and he mentions explorers a lot, but we never see them. Yeah. That's the interesting thing. We're just seeing all of this terrain. If I we're was seeing imagery, the old movie opens very surrealistically. Like at first it looks like we're just seeing this kind of weird black mass of a painting. And then it pulls out. And it's actually, we're, we were looking at Hitler's mustache. Yeah. And we hear, he uses music from Clockwork Orange. Huh. So, and You then, know what this seems a lot like? Mm. It seems like, what's that film that Werner Herzog did with Brad Dourif? It's Wild Blue Yonder. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. Herzog takes these images that are just of, you know, people, like, exploring Earth, but he says, no, this is the story of exploring mm -hmm. another planet. This is finding yeah. things. Now, there are times where the movie, he does kind of make, as you said, these sort of connections that, you know, are kind of disparate. Like, he talks a bit about Vermeer, the painter Vermeer. Vermeer's lace maker was yeah. a big... Uh, yeah, he, he was a big fan of Vermeer, and that's sort of brought up in this movie. The fact of the detail in those paintings... And I think he saw a kinship with the, the detail he had in his paintings. Right. Adali's a great painter. Oh, I, of course. I have one of his, I have one of his yeah. paintings I'm looking at News right now. Newsflash. Because <laughs> like, uh, like, they can see my painting in my apartment. I, um, you know, Dali. I can't say enough about Dali. No. Uh, but he... And then you're going through what is supposed to be this ter exotic terrain, yes. uh, mountain ranges, paths, and you know images on walls. To get up to his <sighs> mushroom. To get to this mushroom. And then at the end, you zoom out. And what you've really been seeing this whole time are the rust and are the rust stains on the brass band of a ballpoint pen. It, it does come back. I don't know if that's not quite how I read into it, but it does come back to a ballpoint pen. Yes. And he kind of makes a joke about it connecting with porn. Yeah. And a woman's parts. The movie actually ends with him like. Show, like, there's a big... The, the only time you see other people in the movie, there's a big gathering in, like, the streets, as if there's a big parade or a march, and Dali shows up and he has a giant hat with, like, <laughs> things on it, and he has part of a mask on, as if he's, like, a special guest for something. Again, the movie... Dali could be my special guest for anything. He... <laughs> it's, it's... It's... As he says, rather than a romantic, it's a classic stereoscopic experience. It's hard to describe this movie, but you should just check it out. But it's about finding mm -hmm. connections and making up a story based on whatever you find. And that's the essence, I think, of great surrealist film. Yeah. So let's transition from Dali. Uh, Dali in film, really good book if you're interested in his... Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in surrealism and cinema and Dali's involvement in a lot of film projects... It, do it does give a lot of good background... Uh, like I said, you do have to get through some academic art criticism. But just skip those parts. But, go, to know, the next, go, go to the really good stuff. It's in the middle. Yeah, you're, you're go, gonna go get a to lot Dali's of letters and descriptions. And, you know, the story about making Unchin Andalou and Lodge d'Or is worth it. Right. Don't so worry. let's go a little bit beyond uh, Dali's involvement in cinema. Um, beyond they talk the about, Valley of the Dots. Right. They talk about the golden age of surrealist cinema. And essentially, the golden age of surrealism is 1928. 
1930. Yeah, like, the fact is, is that if you're being very much, like, into, if you're really into pigeonholing surrealism in that way, then you say it's when, before sound really came into it. There are some people Not to say that there aren't sound surrealist films. L'Age d'Or is is a sound film. Blood of a Poet is a sound film. Right. Uh, And, uh, but surrealism is uh, the you could think of it kind of like called surrealists yeah now now what happens is that surrealism kind of i don't know if i'd say it goes away entirely but it kind of goes underground and it kind of transforms over time but then people are still making experimental films people who saw Andalou or saw the work of man ray are influenced that's how you get meshes of the afternoon which we yeah. talked about on on the other part of the podcast and then Experimental cinema is always happening. You get the films of Stan Brakhage, who is really out there. Like, And Stan Brakhage is someone who I've seen some of his films. You talk about not getting films, I don't get Stan Brakhage. A lot of that's just colors flying across the screen. Yeah. And let's talk about a little, something a little closer. Luis Buñuel. He makes very different films at the end of his, towards Louis the end Buñuel, of his career. Luis Buñuel, though, does have a full career as a director, and he is... Probably, you know, he is one of my favorite directors. And but there are films that certainly draw on the imagery of he, his early career. He, can, like, he uh, continues being still a very playful surrealist, even even in movies that are fairly serious. Like one of my favorite Buñuel films is uh, Los Olvidados, which I'm not sure if you saw that. I one. haven't seen that yet. Okay, in that film, it's actually a pretty serious melodrama about like young youth in Mexico City like it, you know growing up in poverty almost closer to neorealism but there's a dream sequence in it involving a slab of meat yeah and it's great and so Dali and no, not Dali Buñuel though yeah he spent some time in Mexico in the 50s making you know fairly some would say generic but he still slips he, in his own. he, he made Robin he made a Robinson Crusoe movie <laughs> And yeah, it's actually really good. And he made Simone uh, Simon del Desierto. Simone del Desierto, Simon of the Desert. And there's there's a, a sequence in that where a motorized coffin drives up to uh, Sim, uh, Simon's pillar. Yeah, that was an idea that Dali contributed that Buñuel yes, didn't use until. I do remember uh, that from the book. But then he, uh, but then later in his career, he makes uh, Belle de Jour, which, even though it's a pretty straightforward story, has re- very uh, sharp surreal visuals. Whenever makes, whenever Severine is having a fantasy sequence, yeah, he, and then uh, he did Phantom of Liberty, the Exterminating Angel, yeah, where people, where rich people come to a dinner party. And then nobody can leave, and people they for some reason they can't leave the party, and they try to smash down the doors, and then near the end there's sheep. Yes. <laughs> um. There, of course, one of my favorite films of all time, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yeah. Which, kind of, in the flip side, are about rich people who keep trying to have dinner, and you know they can they can leave and come back, but they can't seem to get dinner surreal nightmare happening (laughs) yeah and at one point they're about to have dinner and they turn and it turns out they're actually on a stage and they're in front of this life reality yes and (laughs) that obscure object of desire where a man viridiana yeah Uh, one of the earlier ones yeah i mean with Buñuel, he also is trying to explore you know sexual desire class religion really religion because he was raised a hardcore catholic yeah well uh, that, he was spanish catholic, well spanish, <laughs> that too. it's funny in the documentary i watched people like there was one person who said all these people who think oh 
Louis Buñuel, he was a surrealist. No, he was just Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, Spain. We love you, Spain. Yes. So, but from Louis Buñuel, though, yeah, he's doing his films. But at the same time, like I said, the underground filmmakers in the 50s and 60s, they kind of have their own form of surrealism, surrealism experimental filmmaking, surrealism which got, takes on another term. Surrealism got a lot of attention in the 60s due to counterculture. and Andy uh, Warhol was doing very weird movies. Yeah, but which, that's I'd, I'd call that more pop art than uh, than any. Some sort of them of were pop su- art. Surrealism. I've seen a couple of his movies that one of which included surreal. Dali. So that's true. He did like Dali. Dali showed up for the screen tests, and then from there again, you get into you know there are still cartoons being made that could be called surreal. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I just wanted to briefly mention uh, Duck Amuck. Yes, I think that is. One of the best cartoons ever made, and it's very surreal. Um, but maybe, and a lot of people draw from Dali's imagery because he's just so famous and and Dali's, so iconic. And then you know, eventually, it's hard to talk about surrealism without talking about David Lynch. All right, now David Lynch, I wouldn't say he's a surrealist, but really, how, how would you? Can you describe him? All right, possibly, uh, earlier or is he I mentioned earlier I mentioned uh, Eraserhead, and while Eraserhead has very bizarre, very disturbing imagery. I think it's still a very straightforward story. Um, now it, it has a kind of baseline of having a straightforward story. If you took away the has, imagery, I think you'd still have a base. You'd have a story that people could identify with. Hmm. I, it's not like Unchan Andalou, where the story is completely in your head. It's about the pressures on a man uh, and on his life crumbling around. I think what happens uh, with surrealism is that. Surrealism seeps into the work of filmmakers who are making films that have understandable stories, but the imagery in them takes on the qualities of surreal efforts, like Herzog. Right. Herzog makes the film uh, Strajic, one of the great films of the 70s, which, you know, that has some surreal imagery in it, and, and most notably the ending, which is watching a chicken dance. <laughs> Which I'm sure you've seen at some point. Yes. And I... uh, and David Lynch, and I love David Lynch, and I think he approaches surrealism mo- most closely and successfully with Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Because while those have a very concrete narrative... They do. They have characters with names who do things that make sense. <laughs> well, with Mulholland Drive, though, and Lost Highway, too... It's like the narratives, though, turn on their heads. Right. Uh, Lost Highway has a very, has a cyclical narrative mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't, uh, you know, it's it's a snake eating its tail, and I don't, and uh, you're still trying to figure out what happened, and there and there are ways you can put it together in your head based upon certain images, like the photograph of Renee. And then suddenly she's not there. Hmm. Uh, the the double characters, the transformation of characters into one another, mm-hmm. uh, ambiguous characters who you don't understand quite who they are and, the don't, and don't explain of, themselves. The, the exaggeration of tropes. Yeah, uh, and you could say you know Lost Highway has flaws, but you could certainly. Uh, well, I think what I don't think with... you can. It has a narrative and it has characters, but it doesn't have any sort. But it doesn't. Uh, what ha- happens with David Lynch? Yeah. Separate from the early surrealists, and this also goes for other filmmakers. I'm talking about people like uh, Guy Madden, you know, in Canada, 
And then you also have John Svankmajer, who I told you about. Right. And he makes very surreal movies. Um, and also, I mentioned Quentin Depew, who's a little bit more of a playful, absurdist kind of surrealist, right. if you can call it that. But what happens with David Lynch, though, you know, again, these surrealists early on, and, you know, if you say the golden age of surrealism, 1920 to 1930, that's two years of film. And granted, a lot happens, but then you have decades more film. So David Lynch, you know, he is a painter himself. He's inspired by whatever's going on in his head. Sure. But he also is inspired by film noir. He yeah. is inspired by 1950s counterculture. Um, you know, the way that, like, Lou Reed's does this magic moment in yeah. Lost Highway. So there are yeah, different there's influences. A, there's a weird confluence of film noir and this sort of 50s Americana in his films. C- c- cinema history becomes you know, much richer over time in a way, because even though, yeah, now we have sound, we have music, we have these things that the surrealists didn't have, in a way it takes on a new form, and it's still just as exciting. Right. So Mulholland Drive, Mm -hmm. much more successful in its aims, I think, than Lost Highway. I think so, too. But, again, the plot bends in on itself. It does. And and while it does have what I'd call a satisfying ending... I don't think you can really summarize it in a way that everyone can agree on, and that the interpretation of that story is very much inside a person's brain. When I watched, I, I think I talked about, and it's going to be different first, for every person. On the first podcast, I talked about you know that Mullen drives in my top five movies, and each time I watched it, I had a different take on it. To where the third time I watched the film, how I saw the two narratives changed completely. Right, and I suddenly saw like. Oh wait! So what was dream was reality, and what reality is is dream. And that's another thing that we haven't even mentioned yet. Dream. I tell you how dreams go. Yeah, that's a reference for those who are listening. Uh, <laughs> Unchen Andalu. Let's get back to Unchen Andalu because I can't stop talking about Unchen Andalu. It's the film that close, most closely mirrors what a dream is like. It kind of does. Well, it's the sort of it's it's the quintessential dream movie yeah and Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway they have a sort of dream logic yeah and then behind the Empire them. does as well to a much more radical extent that's why some I re- people just can't take Inland Empire it's too much I remember being a lot less impressed with Inland Empire after having seen Mulholland Drive mm. and everything else it's I I haven't seen it films. in a long time I would want to revisit it like Inland Empire is still a major David Lynch film yeah but it's also him Going so far into being experimental where it's like it starts off having a story and then you just forget about it. It's like, wait, there is a story? No, there's not. (laughs) That's where, like I said, Matt Rosen, our friend, described Inland Empire as a three-hour remake of Unchan Andalou. (laughs) And And Unchan Andalou did it right the first time in only 15 (laughs) minutes. It does get the sense of moving along with dreams. There is... Because when you describe a dream to somebody, you say, man, you know, so I was with this woman and I just started like, you know, feeling up on her and, you know, chasing around after her. And then all of a sudden and then I was she had a piano. And then she had blonde curls and she reminded me of her mother. And, and then and... there was a murder investigation and I was like, well, I was holding something and it became a gun. And I shot. And there was a cat cleaning itself like a Frenchman. And I can't describe what that means, but somehow I knew that that's what it was doing. And then all of a sudden, like we, I found myself walking on a beach with this girl, and we were just walking for a while. And then it suddenly was the next spring, and we were just buried up to our chests in sand. (laughs) 
and while and while David Lynch's films have don't have that necessarily randomness, well, except for Inland Empire, um, they help they make you question what exactly the film was about and there are scenes that don't seem to have anything else to do have anything to do with the rest of the film and you try to wonder well how is this connected to this and i think that's the essence i think that's what makes lost highway and mahalan drive more surrealist than anything else it's about how you make connections between different scenes it's it's funny how secrets travel yes <laughs> I might end uh, I might end our podcast with that song. <laughs> but but uh, dum da dum da 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 dum da dum. Oh, and uh, man, I, I now I really just want to watch Mulholland Drive again. Uh, but that's good. it's about the connections, and somehow when Mulholland Drive curves in on itself. Mm-hmm you find yourself unable to make connections in a concrete way. So it becomes different for every single person. There's something that some writers have talked about and some filmmakers too, that this idea that there is such a thing as dream logic. Yeah. You can follow things in the sense of a dream or even hallucinations. Um, you know, I mean, I, from personal experience, uh, I, when I was in college, I made a short film, which Harold made me Max. a scene called Harold Max. <laughs> and that was sort of my attempt at doing kind of a surrealist film. Whether or not well, I Matt succeed, Rosen I did a, tried to make his own surrealist and film, too. Our friend Matt it Rosen seems really film. easy to do, but it's but to do it right takes some real understanding. No, you need to really break down cinema conventions and sort of break apart how you usually see a film. That's, that's kind of dangerous. It's kind of dangerous for someone at first because we're sort of thought... You know, we're sort of taught three-act structure. This is how a story goes. And usually that works for a film. You usually take the three-act structure and you try to put your own originality into it. Surrealist films and people who try to go into a surrealist route with their stories, they have to kind of go off the rail. They have to try to find a different path. They try, And part of it's just, you know, trying to have fun. You know, trying to be funny. That that usually helps. That's right. why you know David Lynch movies are usually quite funny. Buñuel films are very I mean, funny. As as crazy as Eraserhead is, it, there are still moments when I have to laugh. So, Henry, what do you know? Well, I don't know much about anything. Awkward silence. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> oh, and that part where the fu- where like the mother and the uh, daughter retreat to the kitchen after that weird sort of seizure thing that she has, and the father's just smiling at him like. <laughs> and above him, the daughter is just weeping uncontrollably. <laughs> so are, awkward, but so funny. The uh, in Mulholland Drive, um, the way that like the the guy the, the murder happened, like the guy shoots his partner, and then things just escalate where he tries to make it look like an accident, and he shoots the woman next door, and the woman isn't dead, and she comes outside, and she doesn't know that the guy shot her. So he tries to sh- kill her, and it becomes a big struggle. Yeah. He finally kills her, but sets off the smoke alarm and <laughs> has to run away. And then you're like, what did that have to do with the rest of the film? <laughs> Nothing, but it's great. It's it's showmanship in like a surreal way. It's um, I'd like to finish off this episode yeah, with... Because well, we could talk about so much with surrealism, but you know we only have so much time. And I'd like to just finish this off with a quote from Idea Channel which I think encapsulates surrealism and surrealist film in general. 
A work of art might have its own internal logic, but even if that logic is bizarre, it still needs to be consistent, purposefully inconsistent, or simply enjoyable in its own right. Purposefully inconsistent. That's a good way to put it. All right. I think that's a good way to end this fish. Four. <laughs> <laughs> so, Remember Jack... Remember owls are not what they seem. All right, that was a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> I should I should try to do our podcast. Diane, I'm about to enter the town of Twin Peaks. <laughs> I could tell you this: it's much better than Philadelphia. <laughs> All right. So next, and, and I guess the next couple of weeks, um, obviously, I'll be trying to watch uh, more movies. Mad Max comes out Friday. I think I'll see that with yeah. you. Oh, so you will. Well, yeah. work is going to be tough, but uh, I, tough I want to see... I think I do want to see this film. It might and be I want to talk about me. it here. Now, here's the thing. It might be tough for me with my schedule, but we could talk about that later off mic. We'll have a podcast about Jack's schedule. <laughs> Isn't that so exciting, folks? Um, I'm going to try to catch up on more movies I would like to see coming up soon. Uh, there's a movie I took out from the library called Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, with Alec Guinness. Yeah, in eight roles. Ha! Yes. Eat it, Tyler Perry and everyone else. The time when Alec Guinness was really Eddie Murphy. known for being a comic actor. And um, and so I'm going to probably try to watch that. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a comic oh, actor. Oh, no, no, I believe you. I'm just so amused that we all just know him as Obi-Wan Kenobi now. And, and he kind of hated that. Take that, Alec Guinness. <laughs> well, maybe he's a bit of a prick. In that I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be watching a YouTube series I discovered called Trailers from Hell. I've heard of this. Yeah, it's I a lot of fun. It. It's people who host like trailers, like in their filmmakers, right? Yeah, uh, John Landis talks about Alan Arkish. Yeah, yeah, I watched some of those. They were kind of fun. I, I'm watching the whole series. It's three, they got 300 episodes right now. That's uh, a lot. I, I love the story that uh, John Landis tells about uh, Fellini Satyricon. I haven't seen that. Yet. He saw that when he went was working on Kelly's Heroes. Yeah, and uh, I, I won't spoil it, but uh, go check it out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, I'm just going to watch movies. What the hell? Now, uh, as usual, uh, we'd like to tell you about our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash wagesofcinema. Uh, when I upload the podcast, you will see it there first, as well as soundcloud.com slash wagesofcinema. And we're on iTunes. So Subscribe. Uh, subscribe. Write a review on iTunes. Yes, please give write us, reviews. Uh, give us a rating. Yes, give us a rating. We'd love to see your review. Tell us whatever you think about us. And if you'd like to send us requests for a movie to watch, you can email me at jackgatanella at yahoo.com. Don't make us pull pianos filled with donkeys at you. Yes. Don't make me go all, like, you know, like, surrealist. Um, I will throw a tennis racket out the window. (laughs) I will slap you with a fish. That is a promise. I love you. Um and uh remember and that's about- I for God's sake, see Un Chen Andalou. You can find it for free on I on, on YouTube. Yes, and watch the other movies we watched, uh, if you can. There's a wealth of filmmaking that goes outside the box and will maybe expand your mind or piss you off or make you react in some way. You won't be indifferent watching Un Chen Andalou. No. So with that, I'd like to close out the wages of cinema. And Andrew, take us out. Uh, the wages of cinema is king. Life. Trumpet.